All right, good evening. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for those of you that are tuning in online. I hope that you've seen as we've started in the book of Joshua that the book of Joshua is indeed a, a fascinating book. And, of course, the, the focus of the book of Joshua is the conquest of the promised land. And one of the things that makes the book of Joshua so fascinating are the, the marvelous stories that we read in that book. A lot of those stories perhaps you learned in Sunday school and you heard about Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, as it says, and the sun standing, standing still and uh, the crossing of the Jordan that we talked about today. Uh, we see in the book of Joshua this wonderful truth that God never fails His people, nor does He fail His promises. However, even though the book of Joshua is a fascinating book, the book of Joshua is also a book that raises some disturbing questions. And that's why we're going to be going deeper in Joshua for the next two or three Sunday nights. And we're going to start with probably the hardest question at all, of, of all. So this is one of those nights where you really need your notebook if you brought one. This is one of those nights where you really need to write down a lot of notes uh, this is one of those studies where there's not going to be a lot of inspiration, to be quite frank about it. It's, it's not like, I'm, we're going to inspire you with something great. It's not a lot of inspiration, uh, and quite frankly, it's not even a lot of application. But it will hopefully help you understand a very important aspect of the Old Testament in general, and the book of Joshua in particular. We're going to start with perhaps the hardest question of all from the book of Joshua. The most disturbing question of all from the book of Joshua is this one. Can a loving, albeit just, God command the destruction of entire peoples? That's a disturbing question. It's a hard question. Can a loving, albeit just, God Command the destruction of entire peoples. Now I will say to you tonight that a lot of what I will be sharing with you that I have gained as I have studied various sources. Uh, the NIV Study Bible would be one. The Case for Faith by Lee Strobel would be another. The Bible Exposition Commentary by Warren Wiersbe would be another. The, my own personal study notes from teaching at Anderson University would be another. And so I've kind of compiled all of that together to try to deal with sometimes struggle with this big question. Can a loving, just God command the destruction of entire peoples? So we're going to be talking tonight, and perhaps next Sunday night, more than likely we're not going to get through all of this, but we're going to be talking about tonight the ethical question of war within the context of the conquest of Canaan. There's one thing I want to, to make note of. One point I want you to remember is this. When God's people came into what we call today Israel, the residents in those towns and those cities did not welcome them. They did what most of us would have done. They fought for their land and their homes and their families. Battle of Jericho is the very first battle and the very first example in the book of Joshua. They entered the land promised to them by God they go across the Jordan River, and next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll be talking about the Battle of Jericho. In the, in the sixth, sixth chapter of Joshua, we read some disturbing words. Would you open God's Word with me tonight? Joshua chapter 6 is the story of 
the Battle of Jericho. And we're not going to read that tonight because we're going to be looking at that, Lord willing, on Sunday morning. But I want you to notice how this chapter ends, the somber note, if you will. Um, Verse 20, when the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so that every man charged straight in, and they took the city. Be nice if we could just stop right there. That's the sanitized version. Here's the part they probably didn't tell you in Sunday school when you were a kid. Verse 21, they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. That was the very first battle. As they entered the promised land, the very first place they go is Jericho. And the very thing that they do there, this battle, is to wipe out everybody who lived there. And it's not like this is the only place where that happened. The very next battle, the second battle, was the battle of Ai. AI. If you know anything about that, in fact, if you'll go to chapter 7, again, we're not going to read it, but the, the heading chapter in chapter 7 says Achan's sin. The battle of Ai was the, the, they went there from Jericho, they went there very pumped up, they went to Ai confident because of what they had seen happen in Jericho, and they go to Ai, Joshua doesn't even go with them, this is a smaller city, it's an easier battle in his mind, he doesn't even go with them, but because of Achan's sin, taking plunder that should, he should have left, hiding it in his tent, because there was, quote, sin in the camp, the people of Israel were defeated at the Battle of Ai. And so we continue reading through that story, and we come to chapter 8, and in chapter 8, they go back again, this time with Joshua. I told you last Sunday, Joshua never lost the battle. God said, I will be with you, and no one will be able to stand up against you. Joshua never lost a battle. So they go back, this time with Joshua. And when they go back with Joshua, they, they destroy Ai, the second battle, if you will. Beginning in chapter 8, verse 24 through 26, when Israel had finished killing all the men of Ai in the fields and in the desert where they had chased them, and when every one of them had been put to the sword, all the Israelites returned to Ai and killed those who were in it. 12,000 men and women fell that day, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did did not draw back the hand that held out his javelin until he had destroyed all who lived in Ai. Now, following these type of victories in the central area, the central region it's called, of, uh, of Canaan, Joshua and his armies, basically here's, I wish I had put up a map, but basically if you think about the nation of Israel, they began in the middle, they conquer the middle, and then the military strategy is to go south and conquer the south, and then go north and conquer the north. So Jericho and Ai is the central region of, Jer- of, of Canaan, so they defeat those cities. Then they turn, and they start going south. And in these southern cities of Cana, the same type of thing happens. Look in chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 40 through 42. So Joshua subdued the whole region, that is all the southern region, is what he's talking about here. So Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, and the mountain slopes together with all their kings, and he left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, 
had commanded. He wasn't doing this just to be barbaric. He was doing this at the command of God. Verse 41, Joshua subdued them from Kadesh Barnea to Gaza and from the whole region of Goshen to Gibeon. All these kings and their lands Joshua conquered in one campaign, the southern campaign, because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Now, if you'll just leave your Bibles open, we're going to come back to that verse, back to that passage of Scripture in a few moments. But I just wanted to give you those passages as an introduction to help you to understand that many times people come to the book of Joshua and, quite frankly, to other books in the Old Testament, and they're deeply troubled by the role that warfare plays in the Old Testament and the, war spe- the, the, the way that warfare is played out specifically in the book of Joshua. So the question is, how do we deal with all that? How do we process that? What's happening here and why? Well, you can imagine over the years there's been various explanations for why we see what we see in the book of Joshua and in the Old Testament in general. And there's two basic answers that some people give. I don't think these are correct answers. I just want you to know that these are some of the ways that people try to wrestle with what they see here. One is they say, well, it was a different time. It was a different time. Some suggest that this is a pre-Christian, and some even say a sub-Christian stage of moral development. Now, you know, this was before Christ. This is before we knew about loving one another and all. This was a pre-Christian or even sub-Christian development. This was just the way life was lived in that day. And some would say it was just a different time. Kings did this kind of thing all the time. They would always go conquer another city, they'd conquer another land, and they'd kill all the people that lived there to obliterate all signs of of, uh, somebody trying to rise up against them. It was just a different time, some would say. And we as New Testament Christians need to repudiate that, some would say. It was a different time. Others would say it was a different God. Trying to explain what they see in the Old Testament, they come to the conclusion it had to be a different God. They suggest that there's a big difference between the Old or the Old Testament God who seems to be cruel and destructive and the loving God of the New Testament. And in their minds, it can't be the same God that we read about. One in the New Testament, one in the Old Testament. They're different gods. It's not just a different time. They would say it's a different God. I would say to you, both of those positions are mistaken attempts to try to explain God's disturbing command. Uh, let me give you with this little tidbit of information, then we're going to get into s- some essential truths to really try to explain all of this. There, there's a, a guy named Norman Geisler. He's a scholar and an author. He did a study of every time the Bible uses the word mercy, at least in, in the King James Version that he was studying, every time the Bible uses the word mercy. He found out that the word mercy occurs 261 times in the Bible. And it might surprise you to find out that of the 261 times in the Bible, 76% of the time that word occurs in the Old Testament, not the New Testament. Uh, Let that sink in for just a moment. That's a 3 to 1 ratio. And then he studied another word. He studied the word love. He found out that love occurs 322 times in the Bible and almost, develop, almost divided evenly between the Old and the New Testament. In other words, there's the same emphasis on love in the Old Testament as there is in the New Testament. And on the word mercy, there's more of an emphasis of mercy in the Old Testament 
than in the New Testament. Here's the point. In both Testaments, you have the same identical, unchangeable God. I want to make sure you hear that. In both the Old and the New Testament, you have the same identical, unchangeable God. The one who is so holy, he cannot look upon sin. And the one who is so merciful, he offers forgiveness to those who ask for it. The same identical, unchangeable God. The one who is so holy that, that, that he will obliterate sin that is in front of him. And the one that is so loving that he will pour out forgiveness on people who repent. Is the same identical, unchangeable God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So, how do we come to terms with this? What I'd like to do in the remaining time uh, tonight and perhaps next Sunday night, I want to give you seven essential truths to help you understand the conquest of Canaan. If you're taking notes, just seven essential truths to help you understand the conquest of Canaan. I know you're taking notes, many of you are, and I want to give you time to write that down. Seven essential truths to help you understand the conquest of Canaan. Here's the first one. It's one of the longest ones, so I'll try to be patient and let you write it down. Number one, the conquest of Canaan was part of God's redemptive plan where we see both divine grace and divine judgment. I would underline part of God's redemptive plan. The conquest of Canaan was part of God's redemptive plan where we see both divine grace and divine judgment. Now, listen carefully as we walk through this together. The book of Joshua, that's, that's what we're really trying to focus on, the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua is not the story of Israel's conquest with the help of their God. Now hear that again. The book of Joshua is not the story of Israel's conquest with the help of their God. In other words, it's not just Israel saying, this is what we're going to do, let's all get together, let's go take the land. This is not the story of Israel's conquest with the help of their God. Something bigger than that. It's the story of how God conquested or conquered Canaan. It's the story of how God to whom the whole world belongs at one stage in redemptive history reconquered a portion of the earth that the powers of this world had claimed for themselves. In other words, the conquest of Canaan was basically God taking back the land that was always His. The land that Satan had tried to take from Him. Do you remember I told you to leave your Bibles open? Joshua chapter 10. Let's go back to that chapter again. Verse 42. All these kings and their lands Joshua conquered in one campaign because, because the Lord, the God of Israel, what's those last three words? Yeah fault for Israel. This is not a story of Israel conquering Canaan. It's a story of God conquering Canaan. I want to show you both this idea of divine grace and divine judgment. If you go with me to the book of Deuteronomy, go over to the left and find the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7. 
Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verse, beginning in verse 1. We'll go from verses 1 through 9 if you're taking notes. Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 9. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, this is Moses speaking, preparing his people for that time when they would go into the promised land. Moses recognizing that he would not get to lead his people into the promised land. God would use somebody else. We later find out it's Joshua. And so Moses is trying to help them understand and prepare them for what is ahead. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you. Who's, who's driving them, these nations out? God is. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations. And then he lists the Hivites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Seven nations larger and stronger than you. Those are the nations we read about in the book of Joshua last week. All the ites, remember? That God's going to drive out all of these people who live there. And, they, and, and it says in verse 1 that they are nations that are larger and stronger than you. Watch this. Verse 2. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you, you didn't conquer them. God delivered them over to you. And you have defeated them. Now watch, this is the hard part. Then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. He goes on to explain, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. And here's why. Watch carefully. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, their pagan altars. Break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones. Cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire. And watch verse 6, so important. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be His people, His treasured possession. This is so important. Verse 7, the Lord did not set His affection on you and choose you because you're more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath He swore to your forefathers that He brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping His covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love Him and keep His commands. But, I'm going to go on to verse 10. But, those who hate Him, He will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate Him. We see in this passage of Scripture, this key passage of Scripture, a couple of, of important notes here. First of all, he says, you are the special people of God. Chosen for the purpose of God and because you are the special people of God chosen for the purpose purpose of God you have to be holy before God 
because God plans to work through you. He has chosen you out of all the nations of the world, so you have to be a holy people. And you can't be a holy people living in the midst of pagan idolatry. You'll be seduced by it. You'll be pulled away towards their gods. Your sons will marry their daughters. They will be seduced by their other gods. You cannot be polluted by the pagan idols around you. Then the second thing that he says here, verse 9. You might want to underline this, these three words in verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. Here's the three words. God is God. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. God is God. Can I say to you that we should be careful about questioning His actions? I, I'm not trying to be smart, Alec. I'm just trying to make a point. When you become God, you can do what you want. But until you become God, you need to recognize that God is God. And we have to be careful questioning His actions. But what we see here in this opening first truth is the conquest of Canaan was part of God's redemptive plan. I'm going to use this nation. You're a holy people. Verse 6, so important. You're a holy people. And this is all part of God's redemptive plan to save the world. And, and we see in God's redemptive plan this idea of divine grace and divine judgment. So let me go on to number two. The second essential truth is this one. The command to wipe out the Canaanites had strict limits. The command to wipe out the Canaanites had strict limits. In other words, the battles for Canaan were undertaken at a particular time in the program of redemption. This was a particular time and place, and it was part of God's plan of redemption. But it had strict limits. Uh, let's go back to Joshua. I, I read you all those disturbing verses earlier. Those places like in chapter 6 and in chapter 8 and chapter 10. Those disturbing verses about conquering and destroying peoples. I want to go back and read a little bit of that again because I want to emphasize something to you. Joshua chapter 6, for example. Verse 2. This idea that the command to wipe out the Canaanites had strict limits. Joshua chapter 6, verse 2. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. I have delivered Jericho, a particular place, at a particular time, in God's redemptive plan. Go to chapter 8. Chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack I. For I have delivered into your hands the king of I, his people, his city, and his land. Again, a particular time, a particular place. Strict limits, I've delivered this. You see the same thing when we get to chapter 10. Uh, in the southern cities, the, the southern campaign, God delivered not, not just go conquer the world. God delivered particular cities in a particular place. In other words, God did not give Joshua and his people a license to conquer the world with a sword. They had a particular and limited mission that was specific in time, in intent, and in geography. It was a very limited campaign confined to the boundaries 
of what we would call Israel. Now, it's interesting, number three, God made a distinction between attacking cities that were far off and cities in the land of Canaan where Israel would dwell. This is kind of a fascinating point to me, that that God made a distinction between the cities that were far off and the cities in the land of Canaan where Israel would dwell. Let me show you this in Scripture. Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy chapter 20. Let's start with verse 10. Now, I don't know in your Bible, but in my Bible, the heading, the chapter heading says, going to war. Deuteronomy chapter 20, going to war. And as God sends out His people and they're going to war, He makes a distinction. A distinction distinction between the cities that are far off and the cities that are around the people where His people will be living. We read in chapter 20, verse 10. When you march up to attack a city, He's talking about the cities that are far off. When you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. If they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be subject to forced labor and shall work for you. If they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, notice that stipulation. If they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, lay siege to that city. When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put the sword, uh, put to the sword all the men in it. As for the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else in the city, you may take these as plunder for yourselves, and you may use the plunder the Lord your God gives you from your enemies. This is how, watch this, this is how you are to treat all the cities that are at a distance from you and do not belong to the nations nearby. Now, in contrast to that, verse 16, However, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance... Do not leave alive anything that breathes. Now that's brutal. Let's read that again. However, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, do not leave anything alive. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. And here's why, verse 18, here's why. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. It's hard for our minds to wrap around this completely, but I, and I know I'm repeating myself, but you need to understand What's at stake here? This was God's redemptive plan. He was working out. He says, now for the cities that are far off, you can give them a chance at peace. And you can offer them peace, and if they surrender, then you spare them. But, but the people in the land of Canaan, those people around where you will be living, you are to destroy them completely, and you are to burn their cities. And verse 18 explains why. That the people of Canaan are unbelievably wicked people, and God did not want His people contaminated by their neighbors. Now, I know there's a lot for us to try to grab 
in, a, in related relation to that, but I want to go on to number four because this is where we're going to camp out for a few minutes. Number four is this one. We must always remember that God put Israel in the world to be the channel for His blessing to the world. We must always remember that God put Israel in the world to be the channel for His blessing to the world. Go with me to the first book of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. Go to chapter 12. Let me remind you where all of this started. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country. Present day Iraq, if you look at it on a map. Leave your country, your people, and your father's household. And go to the land I will show you. The land would be the land that Joshua and his people were going to be fighting over. Centuries later. The land is the land you and I would call Israel. And it's interesting, God says, I'm going to give you this land. He's sovereign. He's God. And the Bible says, and we'll talk about this next week, but the Bible says all of the earth belongs to Him. Would you agree with that? I want to tell you something. Your name might be on the deed for your house and the land that you own. You're not going to have it very long. You're going to close your eyes one day and you're going to die and hopefully go to heaven. And guess what? That land will no longer be yours. And, and then, well, my kids are going to... You're exactly right. Probably they will and they'll enjoy it for a while. And then they're going to close their eyes and it's going to be somebody else's. And there will be this perpetual cycle because in reality, the land is not ours. We did not create it, nor do we own it. We just get to use it for a while. Does that make sense? So God says, way back to Abraham, God says, Abraham, or Abram, I've got a special plan for you, and not just for you, it's really a plan for the whole world, and it involves moving you from where you are there in Iraq, and moving you to, to the land that I'm going to give you. Because it's mine. I can give it to you. I created it. Remember the verse we looked at, I think it was two weeks ago, it says, all the earth is the Lord's. He is sovereign over all the earth. It says, I want you to go to the land I'm going to give you. Isn't it interesting that there is still, even today's time, in 2021, there is still a battle over that land? You watch the news, there's always this, this ongoing tension between the Palestinians and the Israelis. That little strip of land in the middle of the world is so strategic and so important and there is this battle that continues for all of history. This battle between God and Satan and it focuses on that land. And in fact, can I remind you that when we come to the battle of Armageddon, guess where the battle is going to be occurring? On that land. It is such a strategic piece of land, the, the most strategic land in all the world as far as God's redemptive plan. And so, let's pick up the story. He says here, he says, watch this. Uh, 
Leave your country, your people, and your father's house. So go to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. And then watch what he says in verse 3. And I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And then all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now I want you to think for a moment about what was hanging in the balance. God was developing a plan for that land and for His people, His holy people. And through His holy people, He would bring salvation to the entire world through Jesus Christ. So when you read the Old Testament, can I tell you what you really see in the Old Testament? When you read the Old Testament, you see Satan doing everything he can to pollute the Jewish nation and to prevent the birth of the Messiah. God wanted a holy seed so that His holy Son could be the Savior of the world. Can I say that to you one more time? God wanted a holy seed so that His holy Son could be the Savior of the world. Uh, Again, let me remind you, I know we're going back and forth a lot, but go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7 for a moment. Deuteronomy chapter 7. One of those verses you ought to have highlighted in your Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be His people, His treasured possession. You need to understand that when Joshua comes on the scene and they go into what we call today the promised land, that land was saturated with evil. It's hard to even describe in mixed company how that land was saturated with evil. How evil the culture was. I will just say in general terms that the evil in that culture involved brutality and cruelty and incest and cultic prostitution and even child sacrifice by fire. This was the land that Joshua was coming in to conquer. Let me just give you an example. Deuteronomy, uh, go over to chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. We read these words. When you enter the land, again, Moses is talking, talking about that day in the future. When you enter the land, the Lord your God has given you Watch what he says to them. Do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire. I just have to pause for a moment. If that was the only thing that would be so detestable, we would say they deserve God's judgment, right? They, they had this, this idol that was made out, and I've told you this before, but they had this idol made out of, of metal. And it had this huge belly, and in the belly they stoked this fire until the metal got red hot. And the idol had hands, metal hands, out like this, and they would stoke the fire in that idol, 
And then they would take their children and they would sacrifice, lay them into the hands, the red-hot hands of that idol. And sacrifice their children to the satanic, pagan gods of their land. That's just one example of how evil the culture was in Canaan. But let's keep reading. When the... When you enter the land of the Lord your God has given you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or a spiritist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. Because, did you see that? Because of these detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. That was what was happening in the book of Joshua. The Lord God, the Holy Lord God was driving out the nations that were so evil and corrupt. G. Campbell Morgan, that great preacher centuries ago, said it best. He said, God is perpetually at war with sin. This is the whole explanation of the extermination of the Canaanites. God is perpetually at war with sin. Now, I'm going to close uh, so we can pick this up next time. I don't want to drag this out too long. I want to close by going to Psalm 106. Psalm 106. When you read the book of Joshua and when you read the Old Testament in general, you find out that God's people did not fully obey this command in later years. They began to rationalize, they began to justify, and they slowly began to accept the gods, little g gods, of their neighbors. And that led to national defilement and divine chastening. So we read in Psalm 106, beginning in verse 34, these words. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and adopted their customs. Talk about years later. They worshipped their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was desecrated by their blood. They defiled themselves by what they did. By their deeds, they prostituted themselves. Therefore, the Lord was angry with His people and abhorred His inheritance. He handed them, His people, over to the nations and their foes ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them and subjected them to their power. 
Many times he delivered them, but they were bent on rebellion and they wasted away in their sin. But he took note of their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake he remembered his covenant or his promise, and out of his great love he relented. He caused them to be pitied by all who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say amen. Praise the Lord. You understand that the next book after Joshua, can you tell me what's the next book after Joshua? Judges. You know the story of Judges? The story of Judges is about the canonization of God's people. Judges is the book that that is sometimes called the book of long decline. The canonization of God's people. God's people became more and more like the Canaanites and less and less like the holy people of God they were supposed to be. And so there was one judge after another after another and there was this downward spiral as God's people became more like their neighbors, more like the Canaanites, and less and less and less like the people of God they were supposed to be. That's the book of Judges. And that's what God was trying to avoid. God who is sovereign and God who knows all things said to the people, when you go into the land, you've got to remove everything there. Because it is evil to the core. So if you'll come back next week, we'll get into this a little bit more and continue to dig a little bit deeper and try to have a better understanding of this redemptive plan that God was working out through the book of Joshua. Let me pray with you. Father, I thank you that you are Lord and God. As we read tonight, God is God. There is no other. You are sovereign and you are Lord and you are loving and yet you are just. Grant us through the power of the Holy Spirit a better, deeper understanding of your Holy Word. Give us a greater appreciation for the work that you're doing in the plan of salvation. For your purpose and plan for your people so that the good news of the gospel can go to every person in the world. May your spirit teach our spirit to love and appreciate your word as well as the God who is displayed there. Our Lord and our God, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And it's in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior, that we pray. Amen.